Bibles tonight and turn to the book of Genesis chapter number 50, if you would. Genesis chapter number 50. Is this okay? Is this okay? It's different, yeah. New me, no beard, it's a new me. And, uh, no, I like to be on your level. I realized this the last time that I was preaching is I like to be down here because I'm with you and up there I get nervous and also because I hate that pulpit more than anything in the world. So, If you've preached from it, you understand why I hate it. I love what it symbolizes, but this thing right here, it just doesn't, you can't put, there's no notes. You see when Brother Chip preaches, he's got like a whole book that's hanging off to the side. This is much more comfortable for me, and so if this is okay, I'd like to do that while I preach. The book of Genesis chapter number 50, and we'll read just two verses, verse 19 and verse number 20, and I really think that these two verses are key to understanding the life of Joseph. And those of you that don't know, haven't heard me talk about it or anything like that, uh, we're going to be going through the life of Joseph. And we're going to see that Joseph is a story of God's sovereignty. That word sovereignty, man, we are afraid of that word as Christians, are we not? Was it on Sunday night when pastor preached the message on Calvinism? Uh, That is exactly why we are afraid of that word, sovereignty. We understand all the attributes of God, or at least we understand what the Bible teaches about the attributes of God, but the word sovereignty we like to shy away from because we can't really identify it, or maybe it's because of the abuse that's been placed on the word in regards to uh, Calvinism, in regards to God kind of working us almost like robots. God's in control, and uh, God has uh, foreseen everything that's going to happen and controls everything that's going to happen, so therefore, we're just living this life like a robot and everything that we do God designed for us to do that's not the sovereignty of God God is in control God is uh, the foreknowledge it's the foreknowledge and understanding that God has seen what's going to happen he's in control of what's going to happen but you understand that we have a free will we have a free will we have a volition that's what uh, some people call it we have we have to make choices Now, God has an agenda and a plan, but we have to make choices to go along with that plan. Don't be afraid of that word sovereignty. We'll never fully grasp any attribute of God, but we shy away from that word sovereign because we're afraid of what it means. It just means God's in control, right? So let's uh, let's look at the life of Joseph, uh, and tonight we'll just do a brief overview. Uh, Look at uh, verse number 19 and verse number 20. Again, uh, as you turn there, I'd encourage you. As we go through the life of Joseph, you will not be doing me a disservice by doing the study on your own. When you go home and you uh, spend time in the Word of God in your devotions or your family reading, I'd encourage you, look at Genesis chapter number 37 all the way through Genesis chapter number 50. It will help you. It will help me. If uh, There's a lot that I'm going to teach on, and I'm going to take for granted that most of us know what's going on in the life of Joseph. And if you don't, come up to speed. Read Genesis chapter 37 through chapter number 50, and maybe I'll I'll just turn it over to you and you can teach the lessons of Joseph because it's just emanating with great stuff. Joseph is my favorite Bible character in the Old Testament. I love his story, and so this is an exciting opportunity for me. I'm excited for the opportunity that's been given to me. Uh, I have no idea how long this is going to last. I've got uh, let me tell you this, this sob story. Um, this is why you need to back up everything on your computer. Um, but I had about nine of the 12 or 13 lessons that I think we're going to be able to cover. I had nine of them almost completely done. They were complete. Like uh, the structure was complete. Everything I wanted to say was complete. And my laptop was stolen. Last Wednesday morning, uh, my laptop was stolen, and so all of that material is gone. So this week, I've been frantically just like, God, you're going to have to give it to me. And I realize God's sovereign. He's in control. He knew that was going to happen, and how I responded was I frantically searched and tried it. No, I'm just kidding, but God gave me the message, and so uh, uh, my, my laptop was stolen, so I don't really know exactly how far we're going to go. Maybe this will be the last time I get to preach to you. Pastor's going to say that I'm preaching heresy or whatever, and he'll kick No, I, I hope he doesn't do that, but I might be with you till the end of the year. Is that okay with everybody? I guess we'll find out next week based off of how many people don't come back on how I did this week. But let's look in Genesis chapter number 50, verse number 19 and verse number 20. It says, And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Let's talk for just a moment tonight about the sovereignty of God and the life of Joseph. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with us tonight. And you know uh, that I've spent many, many, many an hour in prayer praying about this very topic. Lord, I pray that you would show me that you are in control. And I must be honest, Lord, I feel inadequate to teach on your sovereignty simply because I've not really faced uh, situations and trials that, comparatively speaking, could match up to what, what some of these people have faced, Lord. I've had a relatively blessed, easy life, 
But I think that your word is truth, Lord, and I think you have an agenda, a purpose, and a plan for us doing this study in the life of Joseph because the closer we get to Joseph and the more we learn about Joseph, the more we learn about your coming son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd help us, help me. I pray that you'd clear me of, uh, of thoughts that are, are not, not including what you've given to me in my study. Lord, I pray that you would uh, uh, empty me of self. I pray that you'd ease my nerves, Lord, as we go through the study. I pray that you'd give me a comfort and the comfort that is found in knowing that what I have discovered is your word and it's your truth. Lord, I pray that you'd be with me tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for reading with me. How many of you, um, you like to read by a show of hands? Okay, put your hands down. I should have asked it this way. How many of you like to read for pleasure? Okay. I have no idea. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't comprehend why anybody would read for pleasure. You need to know this about me. I absolutely hate reading. And, and uh, I, I, I hope this doesn't maybe deter from my credibility as a preacher, but I hate to read so much that I will not read unless it is what's called required reading. And I've not been in Bible college for five years, so the last time that I've read a book was when I was in Bible college, with the exception of the Word of God and books about the Word of God. Does that make sense? I have read zero books for pleasure in my life. I've only read books out of obligation, required reading, and so I hate reading. It is something that I despise. And I, maybe I should say it this way. I hate reading for pleasure. I hate reading things like novels, uh, reading things like narratives, reading things like, uh, uh, what's the word? That, fiction, okay? Who likes to read fiction? You have a serious problem. It's fiction. It's not real. <laughs> It's fake. It's phony. I don't understand why we'd fantasize about something that's not real. Maybe it makes you feel better about yourself. I don't know. I hate reading. My dad loves to read. My dad is an avid reader. Actually, I guarantee you out of anybody in this room, he is a more avid reader than anybody that is in this room. He reads probably four or five books a month, uh, and that's excluding his own personal study. That's excluding the books that he'll read on whatever book he's preaching through. He loves to read, and he did not pass that down to me. And so he used to pay me, I'm not lying, call him right now and ask him. He used to pay me five cents per page that I would read. And I still would consider that required reading because I'm reading it to get the five, uh, five, excuse me, five cents. I said five dollars? Five cents. He'd give me five cents. And yeah, five bucks. Oh, man, I'd, I'd be reading books after books. As a matter of fact, I should call him right now and ask if that's still... That's still uh, uh, still stands, but he would, he would pay me to read, but he'd read things like Ivanhoe. Anybody know what Ivanhoe is? Tale of Two Cities. Oh, don't say yeah. It's, uh, uh, <laughs> Moby Dick, like not the movie, but the real actual story, Moby Dick. He'd read things like that, but there is hope for me yet because although I hate reading fiction, I hate reading narratives, I love reading biographies. Now, is that an oxymoron? I hate reading, but I like reading biographies. Who thinks biographies are boring? Okay, the majority of us, yeah. Some people think bi biographies are boring. I enjoy reading biographies, but more specifically, I enjoy reading biographies about people that I like, that I want to know about. I don't really care about reading biographies on people that have no effect to me or that I'm not uh, infatuated with or that I don't care about. Uh, I like reading uh, biographies on athletes. Uh, I was an athlete growing up, and I loved reading uh, biographies. One of my favorite biographies, I wrote a book report, and I actually enjoyed it in high school. I wrote about a guy named Pete Maravich. Who knows who Pete Maravich is? Pistol Pete? Yeah, Pistol Pete Maravich. Pistol Pete brought magic before Magic Johnson brought magic. You know what I'm saying? I loved, I loved reading about Pistol Pete. I read about, uh, uh, who knows, Bill Russell. I read about Bill Russell. Um, uh, I read about uh, even, even non-athletes. I read about uh, different uh, preachers, Billy Sunday and Billy Graham, and those guys, I've read uh, uh, their story, I've read their narrative, and so I enjoy reading biographies because it tells me real events about something that happened in the life of, something, of somebody that means something to me. Do you understand what I'm saying? I enjoyed reading biographies, and so the book of Genesis is exactly that. It provides a series of biographies, historical lessons of real people. Do you believe they were real people? It's the word of God. These, this is not a fictional story. It's real people that did great things for God, or maybe they didn't do great things for God, but they provide us an example of what not to do. Uh, the book of Genesis is full of different biographies. I think of Abel. We know the story of Abel, right? And Abel had a more... Um, a more accepted or an accepted sacrifice, whereas Cain did not have the accept, uh, accepted sacrifice in the eyes of God, and so he brought a more desirable sacrifice. We know about Abel. Enoch. Enoch walked with God and was not for God, took him. We read about Enoch. We read about Noah. Now he built an arky arky. <laughs> Who knows that song? Okay, we're not going to sing it. We read about Father Abraham and how he had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm? Anybody want to do that right now? 
It might, maybe it'll wake some of you up. Some of you are already asleep, man. We read about uh, Abraham. Again, uh, we, we make fun. We kind of laugh. But Abraham is uh, the father of our faith in a way. He is one of the first. Uh, 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 the, God came to Abraham and he said that I'm going to bless you. We refer to it as the Abrahamic covenant. And through your seed, all of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abraham is very important. We'll talk about him a little bit in this series. And then you have Isaac who came after Abraham. And obviously, Isaac is notorious for when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac and God provided a ram. And so we read about uh, Abraham and then Isaac and then, of course, Jacob, who was here a couple of weeks ago when I preached that message on Jacob. Uh, He was an avid worshiper, but man, was he inconsistent, inconsistent before God. Then we come to Joseph. Then we come to Joseph, the life of Joseph. And he provides us with an example of living the life of victory in an imperfect world. I thought this was interesting, and when I heard this statement, I actually had to go back and I read the entire story of Joseph, and I found this to be true. Did you know that Joseph is the only Bible character that has a significant amount of scripture written about Joseph, and nothing negative is ever said about Joseph? I thought that was interesting. He's the only Bible character that has a significant amount of scripture written about him, and nothing negative is ever said about Joseph. Talk about a testimony. He lived an upright and, light, uh, upright and righteous life before God. He was a man who submitted to the providential plan of God in his life, and in doing so, paved the way for the descendants of Jacob, paving the way for the grand entrance of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who would say that Joseph's important. Absolutely, Joseph is important to our faith. And we're going to see in the life of Joseph what God can do with just one person that is sold out and willing to be used of God fully submitted to the plan of God and ready to do the work of God no matter the cost. Spoiler alert. When we get to the end, we're going to find out how exciting of a possibility it is. Joseph was a man that was greatly used by God. In Genesis chapter number 50, we come to the end of Joseph's life and he makes this statement and we all know it. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What a display of the sovereignty of God in the life of Joseph. How many of you have ever ridden in an airplane? I should say, how many of you have ever flown in an airplane? Uh, I have, and my wife can can agree to this, I have travel-induced anxiety. Um, When we travel, I hate to travel, and I'm the kind of guy that has to get to the airport at least, I don't know, if my flight's at 11, I wanna get there at like five o'clock. You know what I'm saying? I want to get there at 5, and I can't bring you through my pro- thought process. Those who can relate to me, uh, maybe we can talk about it after the service. And I can't articulate it, but I'm, I don't know. I'm just afraid that I'm not going to be able to make it through in time. I'm going to miss my flight. I'm going to go to the wrong gate. Uh, they're going to find a pin that I forgot, and I'm going to go to jail or something like that. I, I hate flying, and I have to go, am I lying? I have to go super early, and Rebecca is a farinella, and they're not like that. <laughs> And I'm not making this up. Just a couple of weeks ago, Pastor and Diana missed their flight to Chicago because Pastor said, our flight's at, what was it, 12? We can be there at 11.15. And they missed their flight. I, don't, I can't compute that. I don't understand that. I got to be there way early. Who's with me? You have to be there early. Who's like last minute, as late as I can possibly get there? See, you don't make any sense to me. You probably read books for pleasure too, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> But uh, you'll find this to be true, especially in Lamar's case, that when you fly, you spend almost as much time in the airport and on the ground as you do in the air. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you get there, you go through security, you do all those things, and then you get on the flight, and what do they do? They uh, begin to explain to you a bunch of things. They tell you about the card that's in front of you. They tell you if you have to puke, there's a bag in front of you. There's usually three people lined up, and they say, we have exits to the front, rear, and right of the aircraft, and uh, find the exit that's closest to you. And in the event of an emergency, uh, oxygen masks will fall through the ceiling, and you're what? Supposed to put them on who? Yourself first, right? Before you help your neighbor. I don't understand, that doesn't make sense to me, but anyways, they, they tell you to put yours on first and uh, make sure that all uh, uh, loose items are stored in the overhead bin. They tell you how to t- uh, tighten your seatbelt, put on your seatbelt, and so forth. And so they go through all of these things, all of these instructions to make sure what? That we have a good flight and that we get to our destination safely. And so that's what I'd like to do tonight. I don't want to get in the air. 
I don't want to take off. We're going to just spend a little bit of time overviewing the life of Joseph with no intention to really talk in depth about the life of Joseph. I don't want you to look at this message and think, wow, we're really going to scratch the surface like that and that's going to be how it is the entire... No, we're going to get deep into the life of Joseph, but tonight I just want to, I just want to make sure that we're all on the same plane. I want to make sure that we all got our seatbelts fastened and uh, because it fits, you know where the exits are, okay, in case you need to leave. We're just going to do a brief overview tonight and a study of the life of Joseph, a story of God's sovereignty. There's a couple things we need to understand about Joseph before we can ever get into the life of Joseph. So we'll go over those tonight. I'd encourage you to write them down. I'd encourage you to take notes if you can. And so number one of Joseph, Joseph's life was crucial. Joseph's life was crucial. When you study the book of Genesis, although it's a rather lengthy book, as it boils down to its core, there's really only three main Characters, and we refer to them as the patriarchs. We refer to them as the patriarchs. Say it with me Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's try that again. Now you know what's coming. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's say it one more time. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the patriarchs of the faith. And uh, those are really the three main characters of the book of Genesis. And you've got Abraham, he's the father of Israel. And Abraham is crucial to our faith because Abraham had to follow God, follow the directions of God, rather, on a daily basis without having the instructions of God beforehand. Did you catch what I just said? He had to follow the instructions of God without having those instructions given to him beforehand. Example. God did not sit Abraham down and say, now listen, Abraham, this is what we're going to do. You're going to take Isaac and you're going to go up and you're going to sacrifice Isaac. But don't worry, I'm going to provide a ram in the thicket so you really won't have to sacrifice Isaac, so don't worry about it. Did Abraham get that enlightenment? Absolutely not. I'd have you believe that Abraham went up and fully, was fully convinced. I've heard preachers say, well, he knew that God was going to provide a lamb. I don't know. I think he went up with the willingness and submission to God's plan to sacrifice his son Isaac as God instructed talk about faith then we come to Isaac of course the promised seed of Abraham Isaac means laughter why does it mean laughter because when Isaac uh, when Abraham and Sarah were given the uh, the recollection given the understanding that they were going to have a child in their old age what they do they laughed right and so Isaac is the promised uh, son promised seed of Abraham Isaac is crucial to our faith because Isaac had to follow God with regurgitated information He didn't get the same enlightenment that Abraham got from God. You follow me? He didn't get the same enlightenment that Abraham got. God did not reveal himself to Isaac like he did to Abraham. Yet Isaac remained faithful to the direction of God, even when it almost cost him his life. What faith? Then we come to Jacob. We come to Jacob, the son of Isaac, one of the sons of Isaac, rather. Jacob is crucial to our faith because he proved that God can still use those that follow him even when we deter to his plan. Let me get a hallelujah. Who is thankful that Jesus, that God uses people that don't always do the right thing? I said this a few weeks ago, and I'm not going to labor long on it, but when, when we identify with Bible characters, no one ever says that Jacob is their favorite Bible character, but truth be told, we can probably identify a lot more with Jacob than we can with Paul, with Peter, even with uh, Timothy. We can identify with Jacob in saying that we are inconsistent in our walk with God. We've got Joseph, who again has nothing negative said about him, amidst his scriptural account. Then you come to the life, or excuse me, back up, you look at the life of Jacob, quite the contrary. Most of what's said about Jacob is usually negative in scripture. But he's still used of God. Then we come to Joseph. It's important to note that in the life of Joseph, he bridges the gap between the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus. You say, how so? Well, uh, again, God made this covenant with Abraham, and he made, uh, it, we refer to it as the Abrahamic covenant, and he simply says, I'm going to bless you, and through uh, your seed, all the uh, earth is going to be blessed. So he makes this covenant with Abraham. Excuse me. So God told Abraham he was going to bless the seed of Abraham and make of him a great nation. But as we navigate through the book of Genesis, with every turn and twist, it can seem as though God might have bitten off a little more than he can chew. Humanly speaking, that's what it can seem like, but he's God. He's sovereign, right? He's in control. God didn't bite off more than he could chew. He knew full well what he was doing. But you say, okay, Lamar, what do you mean bit off more than he can chew? Okay, so God makes the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham and says, I'm going to make thee a what nation? A great nation, right? A great nation. But when it comes to the life of Abraham, when we get to Jacob, and Jacob enters into the land of Egypt, how many people go with him? About 70. About 70 people 
go into the land of Egypt to avoid the famine, 70 people. There's more than 70 people on the campus right now of Wood Valley Baptist Church. 70, although it's maybe a lot of people, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's great. I wouldn't say that it's great. Would you agree with me up until this point in the Abrahamic covenant? I don't think that 70 is a great nation. And again, they, in Genesis chapter number 45, they enter there into Egypt and only seven people enter in. And again, on a large scale, 70 doesn't sound like a great number. But then we fast forward 430 years and they're coming, into, uh, coming out of Egypt and how many are exiting out of Egypt? Over 2 million people. 2 million people. We go from 70 people that entered into Egypt to 2 million people that exit out of Egypt. Who would say, I'm not a mathematician, but who would say that 2 million is a large number, is a great number? What's the, tri- what's, what's the, what's the difference? What, what took place? What happened? Joseph. Joseph happened. We don't have time to get into it, but as you follow the progression of Joseph's brother Judah... Eventually, you come to a city of Nazareth in the city of David, and the Bible says a Savior is born of the line of Judah, and his name is Jesus Christ. You say, hold on. God didn't bring his Messiah. God didn't bring uh, uh, the, the begotten Son of God. He did not bring Jesus through the line of Joseph. Yeah, but guess what? Joseph, or excuse me, Judah can't have any kids if he's dead in Canaan. Do you follow me? So without Joseph, the 11 sons of Jacob, along with Jacob himself, would have been a casualty in the land of Canaan because of the famine. So just a side note, and I wrote this in here, don't think for a second that in order to do great things for God that you have to have a big platform. Don't think for a second that in order to do great things of God, when you get to the end of your life, you have to have millions saved and you have to, uh, you have to preach to a church of thousands. You just be faithful to the plan of God and you have no idea what God could do through the little decisions that you make. Yeah, Joseph, or excuse me, Jesus did not come through the line of Joseph, but Joseph played a major part in the, in the delivery of the Son of God. <clears throat> uh, humanly speaking, without Joseph, there'd be no Jesus. We understand the sovereignty of God. When God has a plan, he's going to get his way. But humanly speaking, Joseph played a major part in that. Without Joseph, we would not have our Jesus, humanly speaking. So Joseph's life was crucial. Number two, Joseph's life was controlled. I like to alliterate. Is that all right? Miss Connie is not in here, so uh, she was making fun of me last night. She hates when people alliterate, and I said, okay, well, then you can uh, just be in the nursery all, all the time while I'm preaching through the book of Joseph or the story of Joseph. I like to alliterate. It helps me remember things, and so Joseph's life was controlled. It's crucial, and Joseph's life was control- controlled. As we progress through the life of Joseph in this series, it won't take you long to realize that Joseph's story is not full of sunshine and rainbows, okay? Quite the opposite. Right off the bat, we find Joseph gets off to a rough start. Uh, Because of the favoritism of his father Jacob upon Joseph, which by the way, that was beyond Joseph's control, we know that his brothers despised and hated him from day one. They voiced their disapproval of this son of promise as as Joseph would refer, excuse me, as Jacob would refer to Joseph. His brothers despised him and right off the bat, Joseph is born into adversity. I preached this again a few uh, weeks ago, and we won't go into detail, but uh, they're there in Shechem, and uh, Jacob sends Joseph out to check on his brothers in Shechem, and so he goes out uh, into uh, the field there in Shechem, and uh, uh, he's looking for his brothers. They see him coming from afar off, and they begin to devise a plan. Dad is way over uh, at the house over here, and no one will ever know what happened, so what we're going to do, we're going to kill Joseph. When Joseph gets here, we're going to kill him. And Reuben has a little bit of discernment about him. And Reuben pleads with him and says, hold on, let's not kill him. How about we just take his precious coat of many colors, we'll throw him into this pit, we'll tear up his precious coat, we'll put the blood of an animal, and then we'll take it to dad and tell him that his beloved son of promise is dead. So that's what they choose to do, and the story continues. And we'll see that uh, Joseph is later sold into slavery, and they can wipe their hands clean, finally, of this son of promise. And that's where the downward, downward spiral of Joseph's life begins. And as Joseph resides in Egypt, again, we continue, he's working for this guy named Potiphar. And as Joseph's luck would have it, his wife tries to make advances on Joseph, and Joseph catches her eye, and she tries to make advances sexually on Joseph and puts him in a very difficult situation. Then when Joseph refutes her advances, what does she do? She accuses him of trying to rape her. Talk about tough. Talk about unlucky. Talk about being dealt a bad hand. Obviously, because of the accusations, they throw Joseph into prison. 
And again, we know the story. And I know I'm moving fast, but I'm just taking for granted most of us know the story. Uh, he's thrown into prison because of the accusations, and he meets a butler and a baker. And they share his dreams, their dreams. Had a little too much pizza before they went to bed, so they share their dreams with Joseph. And Joseph interprets their dreams correctly and simply put, one of you is going to die, one of you is going to be restored to your former position. And exactly as Joseph predicts it, that's what takes place, that's what happens. And uh, uh, we've got the baker who dies and then the butler is restored to his position. And as Joseph's luck would have it, he forgets all about Joseph in prison and leaves him there to rot. Forgot about the deal that they made and when he's restored to his position in the kingdom, he doesn't remember Joseph. Joseph's pretty unlucky, would you agree? But luck really had nothing to do with it, did it? All throughout the life of Joseph, we see the sovereign hand of God moving time after time, difficult circumstance after difficult circumstance. From the outside looking in, God's lost control, but he's God. He's always in control. God had a plan for Joseph. Uh, Joseph had the opportunity to take the wheel away from God at any point in his life. As the trial came of Potiphar, and uh, his wife, no doubt, none of us would blame Joseph, as humanly speaking, again, I've got to be careful how I say that, but none of us would blame Joseph if he, if he took the wheel away from God and said, okay, I've had enough of this. Every time I follow you, every time I submit to your plan, it gets me heartache, despair, and pain. But Joseph didn't do that. Joseph chose to place his life in the control of the one who had the road map. In the pit, in Potiphar's house, in prison, and all the way up to the position in the palace, you find Joseph is second in command. And Joseph knew all along that God was in control. Joseph's life serves as an Old Testament appetizer of what Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says. We know it. We can say it all the time. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. Is that Joseph? We understand that when you remove the hand of God away from the life of Joseph, it can seem like Joseph was a victim. He experienced bad luck. He'd been dealt a bad hand. Joseph can't catch a break. But when you look at the life of Joseph, knowing that the sovereign hand of God is at work, you see that through every bump and trial, God is in complete control. Why? He's sovereign. And the same God, by the way, that is in control or was in control of Joseph's life is in control of our life today. And we'll see that as we progress through the life of Joseph. And you might be here tonight. Maybe you've experienced difficulty. Uh, maybe you can't catch a break. Maybe you feel unlucky. But I can tell you right now, God is in control. What a peace. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God is sovereign. So then we come to Genesis chapter number 45. What a turn of events. Uh, there we find the brothers of Joseph, and they're kneeling before Joseph. The very one whom they threw into a pit, sold into slavery, wiped their hands clean of ever seeing the son of promise again, are now kneeling before the second in command in all of Egypt. And by the way, that was exactly what he dreamt would happen. We'll go over that, and we'll talk about the dreams of Joseph uh, here in a couple of weeks. But exactly as he predicted was going to happen, that's what took place. What a humbling experience for the life of Joseph's 11 brothers. They're now kneeling before the second in command in all of Egypt. And once they realized who they were kneeling before, no doubt an overwhelming sense of fear came over them because Joseph, if he knows and remembers who we are, we're toast. And Joseph had every reason, every reason to administer the wrath of Joseph because he had been dealt a bad hand and really it all started with his, his uh, brothers throwing him into that pit. But he looks at them and he says, you, uh, you sent, uh, excuse me, he said, you sold me but God sent me. You neglected me, but God directed me. You meant it unto evil, but God meant it unto good. What faith? Joseph had, had faced his fair share of difficult trials and difficult circumstances, but all the while he knew that God's sovereign hand was in control. I've referenced this before, but one of my favorite songs I have ever heard, and I, I constantly come back to it, no matter what life brings me, I come back to the song, Blessings. Who's ever heard of that song, Blessings? It's written by Laura Story, and uh, Miss Melody sang it before, and it, I, it's one of the most powerful songs that's ever written because it talks about the difficult circumstances that we face in life could very well be, and most of the time they are, Jesus or God trying to show us 
uh, the, the sovereign hand of, of his father is at work, trying to bring us through those trials and circumstances because it's his will for us to go through those trials and those circumstances. And, and the, the song literally, literally goes, what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're, you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? And one of the most amazing things about that song is that Laura Story, like I prayed just a moment ago, Laura Story wrote that song really from a position of, she didn't write that song from a, a position of despair. She didn't write that song from a position of objection or oppression. Up to the point in which she wrote this song, she really didn't suffer any major catastrophes in her life. But God gave her that song, and, and, and she was able to write that song. And it's such an amazing song. Again, it uh, has such a wonderful message. But up to that point, she really didn't have anything difficult that happened in the life of Laura's story that caused her to write that song. She just felt the leading of the Holy Spirit to write that song. Until after she wrote that song. Again, uh, up until this point, she'd actually, she'd actually been blessed beyond measure. She married her high school sweetheart who was an athlete and uh, was making money, uh, a substantial amount of money, became very involved in the uh, modern Christian contemporary worship uh, uh, movement and uh, was even helping a uh, worship pastor in a church of over 4,000. Uh, 4, she was, humanly speaking, she was very prosperous and she was receiving the blessings of God. And then her world turned upside down when they found out that her husband, which they'd only been married for, I think, three years, they were young, her husband had a brain tumor had a brain tumor and he's terminal and that song became very real to her in a way that it was never real to her God was preparing her heart for exactly what she was going to go through and through the ups and through the downs she kept going back to that song and there was one low point that she reached where she reached out to her sister and her sister began to talk to her kind of listen to her and ask her How, how's it going how can I pray for you how can I help you and she got so frustrated and angry she said why did God have to do this to my husband why did God have to do that to my husband? My husband served the Lord. My husband was a good husband. He was a good man, walked with God, provided for my family. Why did God have to do that to my husband? And then her sister said this, and this has been absolutely a blessing to me ever since I heard this story. Her sister looked at her and she said, you need to preach to yourself in the song that you wrote because if there's anything that song teaches, teaches us, it is this, that sometimes in the Christian life, what seems like a detour is actually the main road. Sometimes in life, what seems like a detour is actually the road that God intended for us to go through. Rather than looking at the problems of life like a detour, Joseph looked, like a, looked at them like the main road that God would have him go down because he knew that God was in control. Joseph's life was crucial. Joseph's life was controlled. Number three, Joseph's life was consecrated. Joseph's life was consecrated. As we survey the life of Joseph, we'll come across five dreams. I referenced them just a moment ago, two of which are about Joseph and his, uh, his successes and his, his uh, progression through prominence, and the other two, were, uh, two more were about the, the baker and the uh, butler, and then the one about Pharaoh as well, and so we'll go over those, and so you say, okay, what the, what's the significance of these dreams recorded in the life of Joseph? Why do we need to look at the dreams of the life of Joseph? Well, can you wrap your mind around the fact that all five dreams took place exactly as Joseph predicted? If I were to go to sleep tonight, and I were to dream a dream, and uh, let's just, I don't know, I'm just kind of shooting from the hip here. If I were to dream a dream, and I were to see myself uh, uh, coming into a very large sum of money, a million dollars to be exact, and I were to dream that dream, and the next morning, I were to wake up, and I had an envelope in my uh, mailbox, I opened it up, and there was a million dollars, who would say that that's special? One dream that I had, I was able to interpret it accurately, and who would come to me and say, hey, Lamar, would you interpret this dream? I want to know what this means. I want to know what this means. That's one dream. Joseph interpreted five dreams, and he interpreted them absolutely accurate, absolutely on point. Exactly as Joseph portrayed what happened in, the in, in these dreams, that's exactly as it took place. That's baffling. That says that God has set apart Joseph for something special. God has set apart Joseph for something that's bigger than Joseph. You can't look at that story and not come to the conclusion that Joseph has a divine purpose. Look at uh, uh, chapter number 39 of Genesis. Look at chapter number 39 and verse number 1. It says, And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him to the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. 
And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight and he served him and he made him overseer over his house and all that he had he put into his hand. What do we learn from the life of Joseph? We learn this, that although difficulties and trials come, a man that is consecrated to the plan of God will experience abundant blessings. Did you hear me? A man that is consecrated to the plan of God will experience a life of abundant blessings. You mean to tell me that it's not all bad? You mean to tell me that it's not all bad? You mean to tell me that it's not all uh, the gloom and gloom? I'm so, oh man, I am so tired of this perception, false perception of the Christian life, that it's a constant uphill battle and we're constantly facing opposition. We're constantly facing stressful and uh, difficult situations. Yeah, difficult situations do come, but I'd have you believe, and if you've been a believer for very long, you would concur with me that the, the Christian life is a blessed life. It's a blessed life. My life specifically, I can tell you that it does not describe what you would find in the life of Jacob. I I can concur a little bit more with Joseph in that I lived a life of abundant blessing. If I were to go over that, we'd need a few hours for me to even get started on the blessings that I have received as a believer. Who could could concur with me and, and testify? Who lives an abundantly blessed life because they are Christian and they follow God? Absolutely. It's not all loom and gloom. We live, and, and matter of fact, if it was, I probably wouldn't sign up for it. I think of the song, Count Your Blessings. Count Your Blessings. Man, we sing that song, usually we sing it on a Wednesday night because it's kind of one of those songs that count your blessings. Listen to the power of the, of the lyrics. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, say it with me, count your many blessings, name them one by one, count your many blessings, what? See what God has done. We could sing that every Wednesday night and, and we'd, we'd be pretty sad if we'd acknowledge the blessings of God upon our lives. You don't know about your blessings? You need to go to sleep tonight and start counting them. From the outside looking in, it seems like Joseph isn't something to tip your hat at. He's uh, 6,000, or excuse me, 600 miles away from his family. He's all alone. He's assumed to be dead by his father who loves him. Yet here he is, a man consecrated to God, and like the touch of Midas, everything Joseph touches prospers. Everything he touches turns to gold. God abundantly blesses everything that Joseph does. I'd like to be blessed like Joseph. Would you like to be blessed like Joseph? You want to be blessed by Joseph? You have to have the presence of God. You want to have the presence of God? You have to have the absence of self. God cannot fill a full vessel. You have to be empty. You want to be empty of self? You need to fill yourself with something else. Here's what you should fill yourself with. Being consecrated to the plan of God. And watch the blessings come out. Look at uh, verse number three of the same chapter. We just read it. We're going to read a little bit more. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight and he served him and he made him overseer over his house and all that he had he put into his hand. Look at this. And it came to pass from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had that the Lord blessed who? The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessings of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. When you live a life fully consecrated to the plan of God, God does not just bless you. He blesses everybody around you. We'll find that out in the life of Joseph. When you live a life consecrated to the plan of God, God does not just give you abundant blessing. He blesses those around you. Have you ever been around somebody that just emanated with the power of God? You could tell that they spent time in their Bible. Man, I tell you what, every time I'm around Brother Gascoigne, I feel like I'm getting blessed, man. Every time I'm around Brother Fleet, I feel like I'm getting blessed. Every time I'm around Brother Mayfield, I feel like I'm getting blessed. Every time I'm around Miss Barb, I feel like I'm getting blessed. I tell you what, there's some people in this church that are consecrated to the plan of God, and it's contagious. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Uh, The joy is overflowing, and we get a little bit of that splash from the overflow. You know what I'm saying? You ever been around someone like that where everything that they do is blessed and you get a blessing out of their life? But on the flip side, you ever been around somebody who's constantly negative and naggy, who doesn't count their blessings, who's contentious? Talk about contagious. Preached a message a couple of months ago on contention, and contentious people like to make contentious people out of other people. And every time you're around someone that's contentious, every time you're around someone that's negative, what does it cause you to do? Be negative, be contentious, be angry. 
We'll notice in the life of Joseph that the more God blessed Joseph, the more Joseph blessed others. Even when it meant blessing those that cursed him. Why would Joseph have that effect on the people around him? Consecrated to the plan of God. Consecrated to the sovereign hand of God. Joseph's life was crucial. Joseph's life was controlled. Joseph's life was consecrated. Number four, Joseph's life was clean. Joseph's life was clean. As we survey the life of Joseph, we'll see that three major tests uh, come to play. God brings three major tests in the, in the life of Joseph. And uh, I hate to spoil the story for you, but Joseph passes those tests with flying colors. The first test that Joseph passes is the test of self-pity. The test of self, self-pity. By a show of hands, I'd like to know who thinks they've had it worse than Joseph. Worse than Joseph. Anybody? Anybody say that I've had it worse in the life of Joseph? By, uh, humanly speaking, Joseph had every reason to throw in the towel. And by Genesis chapter number 37, if Joseph picked up his ball and went home, none of us would fault him for that, humanly speaking. In the midst of all the things that Joseph had to face, I don't think anybody in this room, humanly speaking, would fault Joseph if he said, finally, okay, that's the last straw. Matter of fact, if Joseph were to have a pity party, I'd feed him cake and bring him a box of tissues. Because Joseph was seemingly, humanly speaking, dealt a lot of negative circumstances. More so than probably anybody that we know. But rather than wallow in his pity, rather than view himself as a victim, Joseph said, I am the victor. Why did Joseph have that perception on life? Joseph refused to, Joseph refused to adhere to the, the illusion that Joseph was any more than he was. He knew full and well who he was, and he knew full and well what God is and who God is, and he realized all the trials and circumstances are better than what Joseph deserves. Do you understand what I'm saying? Joseph did not have a high view of himself and look at every difficult situation that he faced and said, I don't deserve this. No. He took every blow, every hook, and he took it with grace, knowing that God's providential hand was at work. The second test that Joseph had to pass was sexual purity. Sexual purity. We know the story. I just referenced it a minute ago. But Potiphar's wife comes and begins to make these advances towards Joseph and and puts him in the most difficult situation that a man can ever be placed in. And God puts the test of sexual purity upon Joseph. And she makes these advances. By the way, adults, before you tune me out, I know the teens are not in here, but know that the dart of sexual purity is not a dart that Satan uses exclusively on young people. It is very different in the life of a teenager, the kind of temptations that they face, but I will have you know that Satan has his targets, he's got his crosshairs on everybody in this room, namely the men in this room, and wants to see us fail sexually. I'm not going to labor long on it. We will uh, brush the topic whenever we come to Potiphar and the situation there with his wife. But Satan would love nothing more. And man, Satan right now is fighting this church. He's fighting the men of this church in the area of sexual purity. Men, you know what I'm talking about? Something that he knows that we can get us to fail in the area of sexual purity. And he tempted, excuse me, Satan tempted Joseph in the area of sexual purity. That was a test that was given by God. And Joseph rejects the advances. He rejects the advances of this. And in doing so, it could have cost him his life. And by the way, he rejected those advances from Potiphar's wife with his integrity in mind, not his reputation. Did you hear me? He rejected the advances of Potiphar's life not because of what people would think about him, but what God knows about him. Um, Genesis chapter number 7, verse 39. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eye upon Joseph, eyes upon Joseph, and, he sa- and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master rotteth not what is with me in this house, and he hath committed all that uh, he commit, uh, hath committed all that he had in my hand. There is none greater in his house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from thee but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? God. And it came to pass as she spake to him day by day that he hearkened not unto her to lie with her or to even be with her. Joseph was a man of integrity before he was a man of reputation. Because integrity, excuse me, reputation is what people think about us, whereas integrity is what God knows about us. 
Do you understand? Joseph needed his heart to be right before the God he served. He wasn't concerned about what others thought about him. As a matter of fact, the perception came that Joseph raped Potiphar's wife, and what did it land him in prison? You know what could have kept him from that? If he'd have just adhered and given in to the temptation. Maybe he wouldn't have ended up in prison. Maybe he could have kept it a secret. But Joseph, in opposition, and even though it would cost him his reputation, said, I'm a man of integrity, and I'm not going to perform this act with you because God would know about this sin. The third test that Joseph passed is the test of self-promotion. The test of self-promotion. The higher Joseph climbed, the more humility he expressed. The more Joseph prospered, the more Joseph understood that it was God, not Joseph. If the pit didn't get him, if Potiphar's wife didn't get him, if prison didn't get him, then surely the area of pride and self-promotion would get Joseph, not Joseph. The more Joseph accomplished, the lower he viewed himself and the higher he lifted up the name of God. All that God was planning on doing could have very quickly been derailed from the life of Joseph had Joseph turned his fingers from pointing to God and started pointing to himself. Man, God, you sure are lucky to have me. You sure are lucky. Do we do that sometimes with God? Man, look at, man, look at all the things that I've accomplished. Look at all the things that I've done. You sure are lucky to have a vessel like me. Look at me. I'm second in command in all of Egypt. Look at all this that I have done. Was that the attitude of Joseph? Absolutely not. Not Joseph. Hey, we ought to be careful. Because Satan would love nothing more than us to begin to take credit for what God is doing in our lives. Humility isn't uh, just deferring, excuse me. Joseph was a man of humility uh, even when he had the opportunity to put his scoffers and wrongdoers in their place. Humility isn't just deferring the glory to God. Humility is also deferring the judgment to God even when the noose is in our hands. I'll say that again, that's good. Humility isn't just deferring the glory to God. Humility is also deferring the judgment to God even when the noose is in our hands. Joseph had the higher ground. Joseph had the higher ground. Joseph had the opportunity to publicly humiliate his 11 brothers that did him wrong. And honestly, being the second in command, Joseph at the staff of a finger could have said, I want their head on a spike. But Joseph didn't do that. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Joseph's life was crucial. Joseph's life was controlled. Joseph's life was consecrated. Joseph's life was clean. Lastly, Joseph's life was comparable. Joseph's life was comparable. What a tragedy it would be if over the next several weeks we progressed through the life of Joseph and we did not touch the beautiful picture that Joseph paints of the coming Messiah in Jesus Christ. What a tragedy it would be if we got to the end of this study and we knew more about Joseph but didn't know a lot about Jesus. Because Joseph is a type of Christ. He provides us an appetizer, Old Testament appetizer of what's to come in the New Testament. Through every situation in Joseph's life, he paints a picture of the things to come in the New Testament in the life of Jesus Christ. And as I think of the life of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, I think about the disciples. And the disciples walked with, uh, with Jesus. They walked with him on his earthly ministry. They saw him feed the 5,000. They saw him feed the 4,000. They saw him uh, make the lame to walk. They, made him, uh, uh, they saw him uh, heal the blind. They saw him uh, 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 heal people. They saw him, uh, the dumb were able to talk and the, uh, the deaf were able to hear because of the hand of Jesus. They saw the miracles that Jesus performed all the way to raising someone from the dead. They saw Jesus do some miraculous things. And all throughout the life of Jesus, they knew who Jesus was, but they had no idea who Jesus was. They walked with Jesus all along, but they had no idea that he really was who he says he was until Jesus died on the cross, pulled off the resurrection, and then they said, oh my goodness, the whole time that we were walking with Jesus, that was him. That was the Christ. And then many of them went on and died. They were martyrs for their devotion to the man that they walked with all along and never knew it was him. Jesus is telling them that everything that he's done, everything that has happened in the Old Testament and everything that is to come points to him. It either points to him in the Old Testament, points to him in the uh, New Testament, or points back to him in the, in, the, uh, in the New Testament, or points to his coming. But everything in the word of God points to Jesus Christ. Everything in the word of God is centered around the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is the subject of the word of God, Old and New Testament. That's why I think it is absolutely important that we dive into some of these old uh, patriarchs of the faith and these Old, Testament, uh, uh, these Old Testament characters because they teach us something about Jesus Christ. 
We see the progression in the life of Joseph, a picture of the coming story that will change the life of every person that puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Joseph was a shepherd boy called to feed the sheep. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Joseph was beloved by his father, Jacob. And Jesus looked down on the Mount of Transfiguration and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Joseph was despised and rejected by those whom he called family. The Bible says that Jesus came into his own and his own received him not. The Bible says that Joseph, uh, again, was despised and rejected. Joseph was thrown into a pit, and from that pit he arose three days later. Jesus was humiliated, hung on a cross, thrown into the grave, and uh, up from the grave he arose three uh, three days later and ascended into heaven, conquering death, sin, and the grave. If we see Joseph but miss Jesus, then we're going to miss the very reason that the book of Genesis, as well as the whole word of God, was penned, and that is to point us to the one who has the power to set us free from sin. I'll close with this, uh, Romans chapter number 14, verse number 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have, what's that next word? Hope. Hope. Yes, the story of Joseph is the story of God's sovereignty, but ultimately it's the story of hope. What's the hope? It's coming in the New Testament. It's coming through the life of Jesus Christ. And as we progress through the life of Joseph over the next couple of weeks, I'd like you to ask, ask you to do two things. I'd like to ask you to have patience. Do your homework. It's going to take us a while to get through the life of Joseph. I want you to have comfort. Comfort in what? Comfort in what we're, what we're reviewing is the inspired word of God. It's, it's, it's the scripture. Comfort in the scripture. That's what that verse says. Why? So we can have hope. My desire as we go through the series of Joseph is not to get excited about who Joseph was, but I want us to get excited about who Jesus is, what he did, what he can do with a life that is lived in full consecration to his will. Who wants to live a life of abundant blessing? As we progress through the life of Joseph, we're going to find out that blessing is not determined upon our situations. Blessing is determined on our perspective and knowing this, a sovereign God who is in control of Joseph's life, who, humanly speaking, seems like it was in shambles and brought forth his precious son, Jesus Christ. I want to live a life of abundant blessing, but it's only going to happen if I empty myself and fill myself with consecration to the plan of God. So I'm excited. Are you excited? Are you excited? Are are, are loose uh, items stored in the overhead bins? I hope you'll enjoy the progression through the life of Joseph, but I really hope that ultimately it will point you to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, and what it means for you that we get to have hope. Amen. Let's say a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, go to our prayer time. Heavenly Father, thank you so much.